Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's Law Notes episode, we of course have Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, which is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. And today we're going to cover a really quite a wide range of different cases. We're going to start with immigration and asylum related cases, talk about religious discrimination and wedding cakes to lighten things up just a bit, and then talk about sexual assault and violence in prisons. So I'm just going to start out by saying this is a rather heavy uh, episode. Some of the facts that we're going to be talking about, particularly in the first case, which involves a transgender woman seeking immigration and asylum from Mexico, are rather hard to listen to. And um, there are other cases involving, towards the end of the podcast, um, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA, and sexual assault and violence against queer people in prisons by guards. So these are weighty topics, and I'm really happy that we are discussing them because there's very little attention paid to these types of cases in the mainstream press or even the queer press. So that is just one of the reasons why I really want to stress just how fabulous our uh, monthly publication LGBTQ Law Notes is for covering not just this, but international issues, civil litigation, prisoner litigation, um, so much legislation, both at the state level, the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill, um, to uh, federal, state, local, we have it all. And uh, we couldn't bring it to you without Art Leonard, who works tirelessly to write up these cases with a team of volunteer lawyers and law students. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and get started, Art, because we've got um, so much to talk about. Um, and so, Even though it wasn't the big month for blockbuster cases, but it's no, just sort of the routine stuff that overwhelms you. It really is, and it's um, it's quite a roundup of um, topics that we're going to be discussing today, and of course, it it's some really heavy content too um, that we've chosen to highlight for folks. So first up, we're going to discuss, as I alluded to, an immigration appeal, which uh, involves a transgender woman fleeing Mexico. It's a case being heard by a three-judge panel at the Fifth Circuit that highlights just how dangerous this circuit is um, and how dangerous uh, the country of Mexico is for transgender people. Mexico is the second most dangerous country in the world to be transgender, according to human rights groups. Only Brazil has higher rates of transphobia and violence against the trans community. Most attacks go unpunished, including murder. And like we said, um, most go unreported on uh, even when they come here to the States and they're seeking immigration and asylum. So Art, talk to us about this case. Okay, uh, and, and the problem here is we are dealing with a rather abstruse administrative law structure for dealing with this situation. It's a matter partly of uh, treaty obligations that we have, uh, especially the Convention Against Torture, to which we're a party, 
but also statutory law and regulatory law and a complex administrative process. So when people show up in the United States, if they come in usually with a student visa or a tourist visa or a business visa or something, and they decide they want to stay, if they want to uh, petition for asylum, they have to file within a year of their entry. And now think about the people who figure out a way to get across the border. And we're usually talking the southern border. Sometimes people are coming in through Canada, but usually they're coming in through the southern border from Mexico. And if they're coming in without documentation, if they're not coming in through a port of entry with a visa or something like that, uh, you think they're going to voluntarily go and seek out a government official to petition for asylum? No. So most of those people miss the deadline. Uh, and frequently you're talking about people, you know, they, they later they come to the attention of the enforcement authorities and all of a sudden they're noticed to report for possible withholding of uh, for possible removal to their home country or the country that they came in from. And uh, in those cases, if they haven't filed a, a timely asylum petition, they can't petition for asylum. So the alternatives to petition for withholding of removal or protection under the Convention Against Torture. And in both cases, there's a pretty steep hill to climb, evidentiary hill. Uh, first of all, you have to show that you're a member of a protected group or class. And uh, since the 1990s, since the Clinton administration, gay people and subsequently transgender people are considered a, a, a particular social group as such. And so if you can show that uh, you are subject to persecution in that country or to potential torture because of your membership in a particular social group, you can petition uh, to stay in the US. You can't petition for asylum if you missed the deadline. If you didn't miss the deadline, and you, you petition for asylum within a year of your entry, and you can show that you are the victim of past persecution, you're pretty much in. But if you're looking for withholding of removal, you have to show that it's not only that you were the victim of past persecution, which raises a presumption in your favor, you also have to show that it's likely you would be subjected to persecution if you were returned, because now you have to prove that it would be inappropriate uh, to remove you to your home country. You wouldn't be safe there. And uh, for the extreme cases, Convention Against Torture, uh, you have to show that you would be subject to torture or serious physical injury at the hands of the government or of individuals or groups whom the government is aware of but is unable or unwilling to control, oh, like wow. gangs or things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have, and, and most of the people in this process are not represented by counsel. Although in the cases we're talking about, there are counsel and, and it is really crucial to have counsel because this is a complicated system. Uh, you have to have some idea of what to tell to an intake officer from the immigration service when you first come in, because what you say, if it differs from what you say subsequently, uh, in a hearing before an administrative law judge, then they'll find credibility problems because your account differs. And uh, even if the judge finds you credible, they might find that you haven't uh, proved by a preponderance of the evidence 
that uh, you were subject to the kind of persecution we're talking about. And under the statute, they do not consider discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation as per persecution. Persecution means being physically assaulted, not being denied a job. It really means physical injury or severe emotional injury because of harassment, but it's mainly physical injury. And the same thing with that you would be subject to it. And one of the principles that they apply is if you could return to your home country and go somewhere else from where you were living before and you would be safe, then we won't withhold removal. If you can go back and be safe. And that is a big issue. I mean, we're, and in most of these cases now, some cases we're talking about gay people and it's hard for gay people to win asylum and uh, withholding claims now from Mexico because there have been changes in the legal uh, situation and gay people generally, it's, it's not a paradise for gay people, but compared to what it was a decade or two ago, things aren't so bad. We've got marriage equality now in a majority of the Mexican states and we've got Supreme Court, good Supreme Court precedents. And right. we have and you're, to, you're particularly talking about like Mexico City, some of those kind of safer- well, more people than you would expect. I mean, there has been a, a lot of legal developments in Mexico to the point where it isn't a slam dunk if you're gay and you're seeking it, but if you're trans, even though there are legal changes, Trans people are in just as much danger there, if not more, than they are here. And we read in the United States, we see in our, in our gay press, it isn't covered adequately by the so-called mainstream media, but in the gay press, we see almost every week another report about a transgender person who was murdered somewhere or severely injured, uh, being assaulted by transphobic people. Uh, so, you know, if it's, it's unsafe to be a transgender person in many parts of the United States, you've got to complicate that in Mexico where the police evidently are major offenders against transgender people, which you would think would invoke the Convention Against Torture because the police are government agents. Uh, but uh, it depends, you know, do you have counsel? Because uh, when you're before that administrative law judge, you're going to need counsel or you're going to fall into traps. And even then, even when advised by counsel, you fall into traps. And we see that in one of the cases we're talking about. We have two cases here we're talking about uh, from the Fifth Circuit. And so the way this works is uh, administrative law judge makes a decision. It can be appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals. The Board of Immigration Appeals is stacked with judges, many of whom seem to think that their role is to find a reason to keep someone out. You know, and they put all the burden on the person who's seeking withholding or asylum to prove every point and to not differ in any particular from what they said to an intake officer during an informal interview, because and, that will result in an adverse credibility determination. And, and to clarify art for folks that immigration judges are part of the executive branch. And so right, they're appointed by the attorney general. They're part of the Justice Department. And so are a lot of these folks they stay for a long time or they holdovers from many. They, they stay for a long time, but you know, there's a lot of turnover and uh, there's a shortage. Uh, so it's, you know, you read the chronologies of these cases and you say, why does it take so long to get a hearing before an immigration judge? Why does it take so long for the board of immigration appeals to decide on an appeal? And then decisions of the board of immigration appeals can be appealed to the U S courts of appeals.
And so if you're if you're coming into Mexico and you're on the southern border, the chances are excellent that your case is going to end up in the Fifth Circuit or the Ninth Circuit, depending, you know, how far west you are. Uh, and if you're in the Fifth Circuit, woe betide you if you're in the Fifth Circuit, because the Fifth Circuit is one of the most conservative circuits in the country. And it's chock full of Trump appointees and George W. Bush appointees who are very conservative and Trump appointees in particular are hostile. But the funny thing is we even get cases with Obama appointees. Uh, it seems to be sort of contagious in the Fifth Circuit, although uh, we have interesting contrary viewpoints expressed by judges in, in the two cases we're talking about today. So the first case is Ibarra Aviles, and the second case is Santos Zacharia, or Zachariah. Uh, the first is from Mexico, the second is from Guatemala. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the case, uh, the person who, who came from Guatemala uh, has very similar, I mean, the facts are similar in all these cases uh, to some extent. Uh, in, in Ibarra Aviles, uh, the petitioner, subject to abuse for effeminate behavior as a child, growing up in a small village in Mexico, entered the U.S. illegally. That means didn't cross the border with a visa at a port of entry, but somehow got across the border at the age of 18 in 1996, wasn't picked up by immigration for 15 years. So living in the US for 15 years, living here, working, doing whatever, uh, picked up by immigration, came to the notice of immigration, received a, uh, a notice to appear. And uh, an immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals rejected her petitions for asylum, is transgender. Uh, rejected the petitions for asylum, uh, asylum untimely. She'd been in the country for 15 years and she hadn't applied. Withholding of removal or protection under the Convention Against Torture. Uh, the panel opinion seems to view Mexico City as a transgender paradise. I mean, the, the immigration judge said, well, you can go back to Mexico. Just don't go back to that village where you grew up. Go to Mexico City. Uh, and they said she could avoid trouble by staying there rather than returning to the village where her family lives. But even though there's a concurring opinion by senior circuit judge Patrick Higginbotham, he says, to these eyes, petitioner will face a dangerous situation upon her return to Mexico. And yet, based on the formal steps taken by Mexico, and Mexico City, and this is me summarizing uh, Higginbotham, in recent years to enact legal protection for transgender people. You know, formally there's legal protection. In the absence of evidence that she had suffered persecution as defined in US law in Mexico during her childhood, I mean, the, the court says there's no evidence that she was recently persecuted in Mexico. She hasn't been there for 15 years, okay? Uh, she's not entitled to asylum or withholding of removal or protection against the Convention Against Torture. But now quoting from Judge Higginbotham, he says, the panel decision relies heavily on the formal steps that Mexico and Mexico City have taken recently to extend legal protections to transgender people, passing by the overwhelming evidence that violence against transgender women in Mexico has increased in recent years. It accents aspirational changes that have not materialized on the ground in Mexico, even in Mexico City, 
The record is replete with evidence of the persecution of transgender people in Mexico that post-date the country's purported legal improvements. And then he goes on to cite chapter and verse from the evidence, uh, including uh, US State Department country reports. And yet under US refugee law, decisions by the Board of Immigration Appeals denying relief are entitled to deferential review. And most courts of appeals, especially the Fifth Circuit will not overturn them in the absence of evidence that they find to compel a reversal. And the fifth, the majority of this panel did not find compelling evidence in this case. Uh, and this was a representative person. Uh, and Judge Higginbotham, although not dissenting from the judgment because formally and technically it was correct, uh, as a matter of fact, it doesn't seem to be all that correct. He was appointed, he's a senior judge appointed by Ronald Reagan and he's sensitive to this. Uh, one of the judges on the panel was Corey Wilson, who was appointed by Trump. And one was Carl Stewart, who was appointed by Clinton. Uh, and interestingly, after using the petitioner's natal male name in the first sentence of the opinion, refers to the petitioner throughout as Ibarro without using any pronouns. But the concurrence by Judge Higginbotham uses her and a female first name in referring to the petitioner. This uh, reflects an ongoing tension in the Fifth Circuit about naming transgender parties. There were judges who insist on using a birth name unless someone has gotten a legal name change and insist on using male pronouns for transgender women. Uh, and uh, Judge Ho comes to mind. Judge Ho is one of them. Uh, Higginbotham is sensitive to this. A different Fifth Circuit panel uh, earlier in the month, the uh, Ibarra Aviles decision was from January 29th. Earlier in the month on January 10th, we had a decision in Santos Zacaria versus Garland, which is the uh, Guatemala case. Uh, and this turned entirely on one statement made by the petitioner, Santos Zacaria, during cross-examination before the Board of Immigration Appeals, speaking through an interpreter. It appeared, and the language, in, and it's quoted in the opinion, especially in Judge Higginson's dissenting opinion, Judge Stephen Higginson dissented, uh, he said, it's garbled, it's, it's not clear. She was asked a hypothetical about whether she could safely go back to Guatemala if she didn't return to the place where she had been uh, subject to persecution because she did prove that she had been persecuted in Guatemala before she fled. Uh, and the, uh, the majority, the panel decision quotes this little excerpt from her response to this question but Judge Higginson quotes more extensively and says she testified she could not be safe in Guatemala. She could not be openly transgender. She had gone back to visit family a few times. She cut her hair short. She dressed as a man. She went back. She stayed in the house. She only went because they were elderly relatives. She was going to visit, et cetera. And then she went back to the U.S. Uh, somehow she was able to come back in. Uh, and she is represented by counsel. But unfortunately, the majority of the two to one panel seized upon a statement that she made on cross-examination, which suggested that she might be able to resettle 
she might be able to resettle. And therefore, they ruled against her, two to one. Uh, Judge Higginson writes in, in dissent, uh, specifically on her claim for relief under the Convention Against Torture, Regarding country conditions, the government's evidence, the government's evidence suggests that gay and transgender persons regularly face violence, harassment, and discrimination in Guatemala. And he noted that evidence in the record from U.S. State Department reports was not even discussed by the Board of Immigration Appeal in its decision affirming the immigration judge. The State Department report, quote, lists one of the most significant human rights issues in Guatemala as police violence against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex individuals. And the same source noted general societal discrimination against LGBTI people, and that the government undertook minimal efforts to address this discrimination. All right, so, I mean, this is our country is sending people back to places where they are subject to persecution, to discrimination, to attacks by the police, et cetera, what is asylum and refugee law supposed to be accomplishing? It's, it's the system is broke. Now, by contrast, in, in this issue of Law Notes, we reported a decision from the Ninth Circuit written up by uh, Brian Johnson Zanatellis, uh, who I'm happy to claim is an alum of New York Law School and who practices immigration law and who writes some of these cases for me. He's done so uh, many of them and so well. Uh, yeah, Lewis versus Garland. Uh, this is a, a, a gay man from Haiti. And gay people face incredible oppression in Haiti. The police are hostile. The government is hostile. Uh, he, uh, he said his, uh, his stepbrothers learned about his sexual orientation from a man who told them that he had a romantic relationship with Mr. Lewis. They murdered the man. Set fire to the site where they had spoken and announced that Lewis was tarnishing the family name. Why didn't he seek police help? Because the police are unwilling to help LGBTQ people in Haiti. Uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals denied withholding a review, removal. It found that Haitian authorities were trained and able to provide protection to LGBTQ individuals. And the petitioner had firmly resettled in Brazil prior to seeking relief in the US. And on review, the Ninth Circuit panel said, no, the evidence compels a contrary conclusion that he was found credible by the immigration judge. He testified about his prior interactions with authorities, including description of an incident where authorities beat individuals demonstrating in favor of LGBTQ rights legislation. And the country conditions report, the State Department publishes an annual report on conditions in foreign countries, further demonstrates the futility of reporting crimes against LGBTQ individuals they provide specific examples of failures to investigate rapes, murders, and other physical violence. But the panel ruled that the BIA's denial of withholding or removal was not supported by substantial evidence. And uh, the panel noted the BIA did not consider whether either the partner's murder or the death threats against the petitioner constituted persecution, nor whether they were on account of petitioner's LGBTQ status. So the Ninth Circuit remanded to the BIA to reconsider this case. And as, as for the idea that he had resettled in Brazil and therefore he couldn't uh, pursue uh, uh, relief as a refugee in the US, the court said that the BIA applied an incorrect standard. 
in evaluating that. Uh, the issue, they, they said he would have to prove that he'd be subject to persecution in Brazil. And then Isaac said, no, that's not the question. The question is, because if you're going to remove him, you're going to remove him to Haiti. So the issue is, would he be subjected to persecution in Haiti? So uh, the panel granted the petition for review, remanded the case to the BIA. That's the Ninth Circuit. In the Ninth Circuit, especially if you're uh, represented by counsel, and he was represented by counsel, uh, evidently he was living in Arizona. He's represented by uh, an attorney from the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project in Tucson. Uh, if you're represented by counsel, and you're in the Ninth Circuit, you have a chance. If you're represented by counsel in the Fifth Circuit, your odds are slim. Well, um, the next segment that we have coming up is a little bit lighter. I'm well, it's much lighter. It's it's, it's a wedding cake case. It is yeah. not um, any sweeter in terms of uh, the outcome here. In fact, it's a little frustrating, but it certainly provides an opportunity to take a breath. Um, and to kind of dial back and also just note how much um, attention this case has received in and others like it in comparison to some of these other topics that we're going to be talking about today. Um, it's just so stark. It, I'm sure people are like, oh my God, these wedding cake cases are still happening. Um, and yes, this one, this one in particular. Um, so let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Sweet Cakes by Melissa. All right, I cannot believe we're still talking about wedding cakes. Here we are with Sweet Cakes by Melissa, which is out of the Oregon state court system. Uh, it seems that an appellate court judge has found a way to stretch the holdings of Masterpiece Cake Shop and Fulton v. Philly to seemingly allow for a damages award imposed on the bakery shop's owner to be reduced, despite affirming that the business had indeed violated the state's human rights law. Art, this one left a foul taste in my mouth. Uh, yeah. what, what do you, <laughs> what do you well, have? Well, here's... Here's, here's the problem. And when we talk about, you know, we still have these cake cases, it's because of our ridiculous court system in which it takes so long to get a final decision. This is based on an incident from 2010. I mean, this is like 12 years old. So uh, Sweet Cakes, well, actually, it's not 2010. This is a year later. So it's, it's maybe a decade old. In 2010, a bakery in Oregon called Sweet Cakes by Melissa had made a wonderful wedding cake for uh, Rachel, uh, Rachel Bowman's mother, Cheryl. And so when Rachel and her girlfriend, Laurel, decided to get married two years later, they immediately thought of Sweet Cakes by Melissa. And Cheryl, evidently the mother, had not been approving of her daughter being a lesbian. She had religious uh, doubts, but evidently she had come to understand. And now she very much supported her daughter and her daughter's girlfriend getting married. And uh, she went with Rachel to the bakery for a tasting uh, that was going to be run by Aaron Klein, a co-owner with his wife, Melissa Klein of the bakery. And when Aaron found out, because, you know, he asked, well, what do you want it to say on the cake? And they said, oh, you know, congratulations to uh, Rachel and Laurel. And he said, it was just a minute, it's, it's a same-sex, we don't do same-sex weddings, it's against our religion. And Laurel was, you know, Laurel wasn't there, Rachel was there. Rachel burst out in tears, she's really upset. Cheryl takes her back to the car 
And Cheryl says, I'm going to go back and talk to that man. Maybe I can talk some sense into him. Cheryl goes back to talk to Aaron and they get into a bit of a religious disputation. And Alan quotes from, uh, from uh, Leviticus about, you know, gay sex is a bo- for a man to lie with a man is with a woman. They're committing an abomination, etc. I just want something sweet for my wedding. What yes. so, so, so Cheryl goes back to the car and she says, Rachel, he called you in Laurel abominations. <laughs> Floods of tears. They go home and they tell Laurel and Laurel bursts out crying too. And, you know, emotional upset. They did find another bakery to make the cake. But they filed the charge of discrimination. We'll note that we're laughing. This the facts are not funny. This is terrible. Discrimination is harmful. But the situation is just so ridiculously outrageous that it it sparks people to their face. They will use the word abomination. You know, Uh, but he says, "Oh, I was just quoting the Bible. You know, the authority. That's the word of God, etc." So, uh, at any rate. Uh, they filed the charge with the uh, Bureau of Labor and Industries, which is the agency that administers the public accommodations law in Oregon. And uh, they got into a trial with an administrative law judge who determined that the Oregon uh, public accommodations law had been violated and uh, awarded substantial damages. I mean, the sum it was awarded was really substantial. The administrative law judge proposed awarding because the uh, administrative law judge's opinion is a proposal subject to approval by the commissioner of the bureau. The proposal was to award $135,000 of damages. This is non-economic damages. This is all emotional distress damages, 75,000 to Rachel, 60,000 to Laurel. Maybe Laurel didn't cry as hard. I don't know why. Maybe Laurel was secondhand and Rachel was there in the car and actually heard him uh, not call her an abomination, but uh, heard him deny her service. Uh, So uh, it was appealed. The commissioner approved the administrative law judge's uh, decision awarding the damages, and they appealed to the Oregon Court of Appeals, which also affirmed. And the Oregon Supreme Court denied a petition for review. So they petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court. And just to show you how long this stuff takes, by the time this got up, the petition to the Supreme Court, they were considering Masterpiece Cake Shop. So they held this petition and a few others until they decided Masterpiece. And then as with some other cases, we had one from the state of Washington involving florist. Uh, They remanded for reconsideration in light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. So on remand, the Oregon Court of Appeals has to decide whether the proceedings were tainted in the way that the Supreme Court found the Masterpiece Cake Shop proceedings to be tainted in the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And uh, listeners will recall that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, two of the commissioners made statements that uh, Justice Kennedy for the Supreme Court found signaled hostility or disapproval of the Baker's religious beliefs about uh, marriage. But what we're finding is Masterpiece Cake Shop is opening up this, uh, this issue where if anyone says anything in the course of these proceedings that sounds disapproving of the religious beliefs 
of the business that's refusing to provide goods and services for a same-sex wedding, they're skating the line there from Masterpiece Cake Shop because the, uh, the agency itself is supposed to be neutral. The decision-making body is supposed to be neutral. And uh, in this case, the Oregon Court of Appeals, they, they looked back through the record. Uh, they said, as far as we can see, the determination that the Kleins, the Sweet Cakes by Melissa, violated the statute is clear and was not tainted in any way by bias or prejudice. Uh, it seems that the proceeding, the hearing before the administrative law judge was bifurcated. And the first part of it was on whether the statute was violated. Then they had a separate hearing on damages. So they said the first hearing was not tainted. No one said anything that suggested any kind of disapproval. But when it got into the hearing on damages, since they got a cake from someone else, damages were likely to be nominal or minimal unless you awarded uh, compensatory damages for emotional distress. And that was the main focus of the hearing. The attorney for the Bureau, because the Bureau was bringing this case before the ALJ, uh, the attorney for the, for the Bureau argued that this was about prejudice, that uh, the clients were prejudiced because the, the women were lesbians and uh, the use of the word abomination. Now, uh, Mr. Klein said, I did not call these women abominations. I quoted from Leviticus saying that for a man to lie with a man as with a woman is an abomination. Yet the uh, administrative law judge found the use of the term abomination was what justified awarding such substantial damages that really supported the idea that there was severe emotional distress there because of the nasty word that had been used. And they said, it doesn't matter what context it was used. The word abomination was used. That's enough for us. And uh, the, uh, the bureau, the commissioner had uh, approved that decision on that basis. Uh, and uh, the court said, well, there, in a lot of masterpiece, we see a problem. Uh, part of our problem is figuring out how to apply masterpiece. And uh, Judge Lagason, uh, Chief Judge Aaron Lagason, who wrote the opinion for the court, said, quote, from the perspective of an intermediate appellate court called upon to apply the holding of masterpiece cake shop on direct judicial review, of an agency adjudication, it is difficult to discern precisely the rule of law announced or how to apply it. I have a colleague here at New York Law School who teaches constitutional law who says, yeah, you know, Kennedy's gay rights opinions, how can anyone figure out what they mean? How can a lower court figure out what they mean doctrinally? Con law professors disagree. Whenever I try to teach this to my students, I have a difficult time explaining what the court's doing, whether you're talking about Lawrence versus Texas or Obergefell or this case. Uh, so uh, he, uh, Judge Lagason writes, the court did not identify an applicable standard of review and its opinion poses different alternatives. Those range from quote, a slight suspicion that the proceeding was not neutral to religious beliefs to indications of, quote, subtle departures from neutrality. The court also did not identify what party bears the burden of persuasion on a claim that an adjudication was not neutral when the case is in a direct review posture. It did not explain whether the question is primarily one of law or one of fact. And then the opinion goes on to several other questions that were raised for the court that they said the Supreme Court just didn't address. 
So ultimately, the court boiled it down to what they called three principles coming out of masterpiece for a, uh, a, a state court, in this case, reviewing a decision by a state administrative agency. One, a reviewing court must examine the entire record of the case, including each stage of the case. Two, whereas here a governmental adjudicator is called upon to determine whether a person's conduct violates a generally applicable neutral law, and that conduct was motivated by a religious belief, the adjudicator must walk a tight wire, acting scrupulously to ensure that the adjudication targets only the unlawful conduct and is not in any way the product of the adjudicator's hostility toward the belief itself. And three, because even, quote, a subtle departure from neutrality violates the First Amendment, even subtle departures require some form of corrective action from a reviewing court. And so here, the court finds that during the hearing on damages, there were subtle departures from neutrality by labeling the position of the baker as prejudice. They said calling it prejudice is taking a side in a religious argument. And uh, being uh, careless about how the word abomination was used here. They said it's one thing if, uh, let's say, uh, a gay couple walks into a baker and asks for a wedding cake, and he says, you're abominations, get out of here. That's one thing. It's another thing where Cheryl is going in and saying, well, I, I had religious objections too, but I've worked my way through this and now I accept my daughter. And he says, but Leviticus says, and he quotes Leviticus, that's different. That's engaging in a debate about religious doctrine. And the court says, the agency can't take sides in a debate like that, a debate about religious doctrine. And uh, by hanging the damage award here on his word of the use abomination when quoting from the Bible, you know, uh, the agency shouldn't be taking sides in that uh, when there are actually religious authorities who differ about how to interpret that, etc. cetera. Uh, so the uh, damage award is vacated. The case is remanded back to the agency to reconsider damages. Now they can still award damages, but obviously they can't award damages anywhere in the neighborhood of $135,000 in this case. So I have a feeling it's going to turn out to be nominal damages or not much more than that. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about other disturbing issues involving inmates and sexual assault. All right. Uh, the next case that we're talking about uh, involves damages being sought for sexual violence and assault by inmates and guards. It's a roundup of cases, and it's a feature in Law Notes that was written up by Bill Rold, who has dedicated countless pro bono hours to the effort of achieving the safety and dignity of queer inmates. Um, Bill opens his segment with this. Sexual assault in prison is so common that Congress nearly unanimously enacted the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA. It provides for zero tolerance of such activity. Yet, as we discuss now, PREA's enforcement, implementation, and application is and has been a total institutional failure, leaving incarcerated LGBTQ people vulnerable to assault and fearing for their safety. Art, tell us about this roundup of cases. All right. Well, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, passed by Congress in 2003, 
uh, authorized uh, a study to be done uh, and a report to be issued on the issue of sexual assault in prisons and authorized the adoption of regulations by the Justice Department to be binding on the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, and you know what? The courts couldn't care less. Uh, too many of the courts couldn't care less. Uh, part of the problem is that a lot of the litigation is pro se litigation. Most prisoners, overwhelming majority, are not represented by counsel. And so they don't necessarily know what to say or how to frame their cases. You get these handwritten complaints that come in and they're screened by a pro se clerk. And uh, usually uh, you have a magistrate that's uh, the district court assigns uh, to decide them and the magistrates almost always uh, recommend dismissing them because they missed the deadline or they failed to exhaust their internal remedies or they failed to name the particular people who had persecuted them in prison or who had assaulted them or whatever. And frequently it's a statute of limitations problem. And uh, Priya purported to eliminate a statute of limitations on sexual assault cases in prison. But nonetheless, uh, most prisons say if you have a, a grievance, you have to file it within a certain period of time. And if you don't, if you don't file within time, we'll dismiss it as untimely. And then you haven't exhausted your remedies because you're supposed to appeal. And part of the problem, and particularly in cases where guards sexually assault inmates, and we're talking in these cases sexually assaulting gay or transgender inmates, uh, filing a charge against a guard is pretty serious because that guard has a lot of sway over your life and people are afraid to do it. I mean, the first case that, uh, that Bill accumulated four different cases for this article in the February issue of Law Notes, he said, we have so many of these cases, I think I need to do a general article about the problem that PREA has regulations that are generally not observed. In fact, Legal is working on an amicus brief in support of a cert petition in a case we hope to get to the Supreme Court because there is no Supreme Court authority telling us what role PREA plays when inmates file Eighth Amendment claims. Uh, PREA itself doesn't expressly create a cause of action. And so most courts say it's sort of like advisory or something. It somehow isn't binding. PREA says when a uh, transgender or gay inmate is going through the intake process into the prison, they have to be screened for potential vulnerability to assault and they have to be protected. And this dates back from a Supreme Court case from the 1980s, Farmer versus Brennan, one of the few cases that the Supreme Court has ever decided on uh, transgender issues. And they said, if the prison authorities are aware of a danger, they have to take steps to protect the inmate. And many, many prisons, including the Federal Bureau of Prisons, although they've put out a new handbook and they claim that there are new procedures, we'll see. The handbook is kind of new and we'll see whether the procedures work. But these cases involve, many cases involve uh, people who come in in situations where they are very vulnerable to assault. We have uh, transgender people, uh, men uh, identified as men at birth, living as women, treated by the prison system as men, put in a male prison, uh, and are uh, presenting in an effeminate manner, uh, growing their hair long, uh, somewhat limited in, in their ability to dress in a, in, a, in a female manner because some prisons uh, will not 
sell them in the commissary and we require them to wear the standard prison uniform. But uh, people who are obviously vulnerable to assault and in general population, particularly vulnerable. And we have a bunch of cases here in which they are bringing lawsuits against the guard who assaulted them or against the prison itself. And having the prison be responsible is very difficult because uh, you know, if you're, you're, you're suing uh, directly for uh, sexual assault, there will be a claim that assaulting prisoners is not within the scope of employment of the guard and therefore the prison can't be held liable. It's like the like responding at superior in employment law. And that isn't appropriate here. And then you'll have arguments saying, well, uh, there's a consent defense. The, uh, the, the inmate didn't put up a fuss. They willingly uh, performed oral sex on the guard in exchange for favors and stuff like that. And therefore it was consensual. Now, the Prison Rape Elimination Act says whether it is quote unquote consensual or not consensual doesn't make a difference. That if, uh, if a guard is forcing an inmate to have sex for any reason, that's rape. Of course. <laughs> that's rape. Jeez. And, and uh, several states have now amended their laws saying that uh, uh, you don't have consent for sexual assault. You know, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating. You read these cases and you see even a, a case arising in a state that has outlawed a consent defense for sexual assault. And yet the federal district judge is going to allow a trial here because it's clear the guard was subsequently convicted of sexual assault of prisoners. But now the prisoner is suing for damages. And the guard is saying, and the, the judge is saying, well, we need to have a trial on consent because the guard claims uh, it was consensual. And uh, I mean, this is this is quoting from a judge in a case uh, that arose. Let's see, this one is from Connecticut, of all places. Uh, the judge finds the sexual assaults were not physically coercive. And unlike a violent sexual assault or rape that would likely result in the most severe type of psychological trauma. So, and also the, uh, the inmate's struggle with her gender dysphoria did not prevent her from filing this lawsuit or from filing other grievances and complaints. This was about someone who didn't file a complaint until years later, uh, after the guard in question had been investigated and had subsequently been convicted of uh, sexual assault. So then, uh, the inmate files a complaint and uh, the, uh, the court originally threw this out on statute of limitations grounds. And the second circuit reversed and said, well, there's a question of whether uh, there should have been equitable tolling of the statute because she claimed she was afraid. Uh, and uh, now the judge is saying, well, no, I don't think so. I, I think this is a person who knew how to stand up for herself. She actually filed the pro se habeas corpus petition, protesting her conviction. You know, she, she's filing things. Why couldn't she file a claim against the guard? Why did she wait for, for eight years, something like that? Outrageous. And then we have another case where even though the federal rules, uh, this is a case that arose in, in uh, New Jersey, uh, the case lingered on the docket for five years. And finally, the chief judge of the Third Circuit reassigned it to a senior judge 
who was appointed by Ronald Reagan. So it's a pretty old senior judge. And the senior judge says, well, I think there are some consent issues here. Uh, and uh, also, uh, even though New Jersey and Priya both eliminated consent as a defense to a sexual assault on a prisoner. But the judge says, oh, there's, there are issues of consent here. Uh, and uh, the uh, inmate had filed a motion in limine to exclude any mention of his sexual orientation, the inmate is gay. And the guard's gonna say, oh, it was consensual, he was gay, he wanted to have sex with me. And uh, the, uh, the court concludes that Walker's sexual orientation is strongly entwined with the facts of the case and its probative value, which will greatly aid the jury in understanding the allegations, is not substantially outweighed by any speculative threat of anti-gay prejudice. And therefore, he's gonna be outed. The prisoner who was sexually assaulted is gonna be outed. There is no question he was sexually assaulted. The guard has actually been convicted of sexual assault, but in suing for damages, the guard is gonna be able to make a consent defense and the jury is gonna be told that the inmate was gay. I mean, it's, you read these things and you wanna cry. You know, perhaps we need to take these inmate cases out of the Article Three courts and create a special uh, judicial body to deal with these cases with people who will have expertise and training and people who will be well-versed with PREA. And uh, hopefully we get the Supreme Court to take the case. Uh, someone filed a, a, a cert petition from a case down south and the gal is uh, working on an amicus brief. It probably won't be granted, but if it is, time to recognize PREA. Heartbreaking indeed. All right, Art, do you have an of note for us? Yeah, this is a wedding cake that isn't a wedding cake case. Uh, we, we report on a decision by the European Court of Human Rights issued on January 6th in the case of Gareth Lee against the United Kingdom. Gareth Lee is a gay activist who was working on the issue of trying to get same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. And uh, there were various uh, problems in the Northern Ireland Parliament. And uh, he was uh, going to a meeting. This is in May of 2014, uh, sort of a strategy meeting uh, marking uh, the end of the uh, legislative session to talk about plans uh, the next time around to try to get marriage equality law through the Irish Parliament. And uh, he decided he wanted to bring a cake that would promote same-sex marriage. So he went to Asher's Baking Company Limited, uh, which makes specialty cakes and things like that. And he asked to make a cake uh, that would uh, say support gay marriage and it would have a picture of Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street and a square space logo. And Asher's turned him down. They said, uh, we're a Christian business. And uh, the, uh, the clerk had taken the order, but then was countermanded by management. And they said, we, uh, we can't we, we give you a refund. We can't give you uh, a cake like you wanted. Uh, they even apologized. They said it, it was a, a mistake. The clerk should have, been, should have known better. Uh, but he sued for breach of statutory duty in and about the provision of goods, facilities, and services in violation of anti-discrimination law. And uh, the local court in 
Northern Ireland County Court ruled against the defendants, finding they discriminated against Lee on the ground of his sexual orientation in violation of the Equality Act regulations and the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, but under the sexual orientation regulations, but the county court ruled that the European Convention on Human Rights was not violated uh, because of their rights to hold the religious views. But he was awarded a sum of 500 British pounds as damages and Asher's appealed. And the case eventually worked its way to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom in 2018. And reversing the lower courts, the Supreme Court said they didn't refuse to make the cake because of Lee's sexual orientation. They refused to make the cake because the cake was to be an endorsement of same-sex marriage of which they objected on religious grounds, which they had a right to do. That was the decision of the United Kingdom Supreme Court. And uh, the bakery, of course, had raised its rights under the European Convention of Human Rights, which protects religious freedom. Uh, now, Mr. Lee had never claimed that uh, refusing to make the cake for him violated his rights under the European Convention because the European Convention, it's basically binding on governments. Uh, but uh, he appealed to the European Court of Human Rights, say, claiming that Asher's refusal to make the cake for him, and he specifically now is taking aim at the United Kingdom Supreme Court's decision, because he's suing the United Kingdom Supreme Court. He's saying the Supreme Court's decision violated his rights under the European Convention. And the European Court of Human Rights said, no, you don't get to do that, because uh, in, a, in the first instance, domestic courts in countries that are parties to the convention, domestic courts in first instance decide whether the convention is violated and you did not raise the convention as part of your case against Asher's. They raised it in defense. You didn't raise it. You didn't claim that the anti-discrimination and equality provisions of the convention applied to your case. Therefore, you forfeited that argument here we cannot supplant the domestic courts of the United Kingdom in deciding that issue on the first ground. And also in describing the UK Supreme Court's decision, it's not like they said, we agree with it, but they did certainly didn't disagree with it, with the idea that he was denied the cake, uh, not because he's gay, but because of the message on the cake. And they cited the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Hmm. Sort of interesting. I mean, this this does certainly bring up a lot of the the thorny issues around the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which involved, you know, how do you draw the line between what is actually a message, what's support, what's an endorsement versus, you know, who's a cake artisan versus a, you know, cabinet artisan versus, you know, is this artistry, is this speech, is this a message? Um, this this case makes it points out some of the ways that 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 there are bounds on either side. It's difficult. I think you know the the case is easy, easier with florists, but if you have a floral display that has a ribbon that says something on it, then all of a sudden you have speech. Uh, right. And and like the wedding photographer cases, uh, where we get different results in different uh, different uh, parts of the country. If there's a speech component. But when they try to turn a cake into a speech component, it better have to do with what it says on the cake. Right. And there you see it's a speech component. And then the argument becomes, is it the customer's speech that they're paying for or is it the baker's speech? Because the baker is actually writing the words on the cake. You know, we get into real hair splitting here. And you don't want hair on your cake, right? No. So, 
And I don't want my cake split too finely either. I'd like a nice big piece, please. <laughs> All right. Well, Art, as usual, it's a pleasure to speak with you. This is a really important um, episode filled with just tons um, of information and, and cases that people will find intriguing. So thank you so much. Okay. And we'll see you next month. And in person, Art. We're going to try this out in person, right? We'll see. We'll see. I don't know if the school will let you in. We'll see. <laughs> well, we may have to record it in my living room. All right. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found online, on iTunes, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I will drop the link to Legal's LGBT Law Notes in the podcast description so that you can check it out, peruse. Uh, we make it free as a service, not just to our members, but to the public. So uh, please, thank you so much for your support, not only of this podcast, but of the LGBT Bar Association of New York. If you're not a member, please become a member today. If you haven't renewed your dues, please renew those dues. And if you want to make just a donation to make sure we can continue to bring this content, please do that too. I'll drop a donation link in the uh, description as well. Thanks so much.